tale as old as time. <laughs> I actually hate that song. <laughs> I don't blame you. I, I like tangent before we start. I have a very love hate relationship with Beauty and the Beast, and all the parts that people love are the parts that I hate. If I could have just the mob song in Gaston, I'm set. I I can see this for you, and I'm not surprised. I love Gaston. I think that is one of the finest pieces of, like, Disney music ever done. I have these antlers in all of my, my decorating. So we walked into the place in um, Florida. There we go. Disney World. There we go. <laughs> the Disney place in Florida. The Disney place in Florida. The and they house. have Gaston's Tavern. Yes. And literally, it's just antlers everywhere uh, in this yes. back room. And I'm like, it just looks like Lano. Like, it doesn't. Look... Yeah, like, that was weird because, like, I guess this it was is supposed South to. Texas. Yeah, it was supposed to talk about how, like, monstrous of a hunter he is. I'm like, that's just. That's the South. <laughs> have you been to Texas in November? Right. Like, like this isn't. That's, that's not foreign to me. That, that's everyone's house, Gaston. And the mob song is great uh, because it's Disney not being subtle at all. Like, it is telling you the themes. Yes. I love it when Disney screams the theme at you. I mean, it's better than Hawthorne, though, smacking you in the face with themes. I mean, yeah, but Disney so rarely does it. So, like, it's very, very interesting when it's, like, when you have a line that says, we don't like what we don't understand because it scares us. Like, we're done. Movie's over. You know? (laughs) Pocahontas, the white men are dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Though I do, I increasingly do hate that uh, Pocahontas tried to, like, uh, double time the whole thing, where it's like, <sighs> oh, well, they were also suspicious. Like, that doesn't make it okay. Oh my gosh, that movie is so historically inaccurate. Stop looking to animated children's movies for historical accuracy. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> Abandon all of you enter here. Stop it! <laughs> I'm about to do the longest blog post about overthinking media, because Lindsay Ellis does it and drives up the fucking wall. I mean, I just sit there and watch Frozen and go, okay, I can accept this. Anyway, so this week, welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. Hello, I just got very heated about Disney movies. Um, this week, we are talking about Romeo and Juliet, yes. which you basically have to read in most high school classes in America. Yeah, I think freshman year usually. like it's They, they cross that bridge pretty early. Yes. Okay. Um, and then I know we did Macbeth like at the end of things, but... Like senior senior year okay, when nobody cared anymore. Anyway, um, so the creative title of this, or the, our weird title, is Romeo and Juliet is not a love story. Yeah, it's not. I'm sorry. Like we're we'll definitely cross that bridge further, but I'm gonna go ahead and just set expectations. It's not a love story. All right. So what are we drinking? We're drinking a uh, blush uh, spumante. It is a California champagne, which is anachronistic because it cannot be called champagne if it is not. Uh, produced in the Champagne region of France. I don't think Andre gives a fuck, though. <laughs> Andre Spumante doesn't give a fuck and a half. Andre is like, we're here because we know that you want to get drunk. Yes, would you like to open this bottle? Sure. I leave the bottle opening to Tori because I can't be trusted. Yay! The good news... Ooh. Would you like to pour? I'll pour. It's cool because it's got, like, the little... Had the little steam, not steam. I don't even know what it is. There it's were a gases release of CO two. Oh, it was pretty. It was. It was very. Uh, it was very atmospheric. There's a lot of foam because this has come to temperature. There's so much going on in this glass. So much complexity. I'm like, it's pretty. You're like, it's complex. <laughs> Our podcast summed up. 
our podcast in a nutshell. Uh, so we have been told our uh, we that this has fruity notes of raspberry and honey. Sure. It tastes like drunk. Yeah, it, it tastes yeah. like uh, I'm a poor college student drunk. So what would your tasting notes be? Uh, pink. <laughs> no, I mean like if you were a wine. Oh, if I was a wine? Uh, if I was a wine, probably uh, dry, ascarabic, uh, shockingly sweet finish. If I was a bourbon, it would be uh, hints of fruit and nut. Excellent. Yes. Yours? Um, dirty. I think I think California champagne sums you up perfectly. Like something that is technically an oxymoron. Not a, not a real thing. <laughs> a... I was going to say, in this season of the year, um, pumpkin spice. <laughs> Are you a pumpkin spice bitch? I am a pumpkin spice bitch, but I try to keep it on the down low because I don't do it for status or anything. I just have always what? loved pumpkin pie. Post so status. I don't, okay, so here's the thing. Uh-huh. And I did it recently. I took uh-huh. a picture of, of the uh, cold brew pumpkin cream from uh-huh. Starbucks because it's delicious. Sure. Um, my husband hates Starbucks, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it uh, it made me happy, and it tasted really good. It basically tasted like pie and coffee. Uh-huh. You do know that I'm a member of the Orange Sleeve Society. I don't know what that means. It is a secret Illuminati that Starbucks made for uh, pumpkin spice latte lovers. Really? So I have like a monogrammed a drink cozy that says uh or that says Orange Leaf Society. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm a part of a secret Starbucks Illuminati, and they follow me on Twitter. I want to be part of a secret Illuminati. Yeah, it was great. Um, <laughs> it was amazing to find out that Starbucks followed me on Twitter. Apparently, I am an influencer. Uh, today on the cheese plate, we have a thing called Parmesan cheddar, which is a cheddar with Parmesan notes. I'm very excited Try about the cheese. cheese. Before we even talk about literature. It's cheddar. Oh, there's the Parmesan. Looks good. I don't hate it. I don't hate it at all. Today, and we're eating this entire cheese plate. Yeah, today, today, none of this cheese plate will be wasted. Where are we putting things? I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. All right. So, I hope you've read it. Yeah, if you haven't read it, um... What cave have you been living in? Um, I uh, personally like listened to the audiobook of this because I could not bring myself to read it again. I had a free copy on the Kindle. So I read that and mostly just enjoyed the work of other people highlighting the important lines for me. And I uh, watched a lot of Crash Course. I would, I would like to say that this is not Shakespeare's best play. Really? I don't think it is. You don't? I think Hamlet and Macbeth are far better tragedies. Okay. Um, I disagree with you slightly, but I, I, I do think I like Hamlet more. I love Hamlet. So, I love Hamlet. Okay. Shall we short story so, long? Short story long. So there's a narrator. He tells everybody there are two houses. They both had kids. These kids killed themselves for love. And then we immediately go into a street fight between servants of the Montagues and Capulets. Mm-hmm. We get that these are warring Italian families. The Prince of Verona tells everyone to chill the fuck out, and that anyone who breaks the peace going forward is going to be put to death. Around this time, Count Paris asks about marrying Lord Capulet's daughter, Juliet. Juliet? I wrote Julie for some reason. No, I like Julie. Her name's Julie. Julie. Her name's Julie going forward. So... 
Capulet says, um, can you wait like a couple more years? Cause she's my sweet baby angel. And, um, but you know, in the meantime, you can come to a party at our house tonight. And by sweet baby angel, we mean like all of 13. She's, she's a little one. Um, like I, I can't imagine marrying off my child who, I mean, she's like 10, but I, in three years, no, no, she's still gonna be watching YouTube. Anyway, Lady Capulet is in the meantime, in the background with her kid, Juliet, going, listen, you're getting old. You should marry Paris. And Juliet is very annoyed. Sounds like my whole family. Benvolio is meanwhile taking Romeo Montague, who straight up just wants to die because Rosalind, the girl he's supposedly madly in love with, is not into him. Yes. Benvolio and Mercutio convince Romeo to get out of the house and go to the Capulet party since Rosalind is supposed to be there. Instead, he sees Juliet and falls madly in love. Meanwhile, Tybalt to the Capulet crew is very furious to see a Montague at their party and goes to kill him. But Juliet's dad is like, hey, knock it off. We just want to have fun and I don't want to get the blood out of my carpet. So after the ball, Romeo goes to Juliet's balcony and hears Juliet talk about how bad she's got it for Romeo, even though their families hate each other. Mm-hmm. Romeo says, hey, admit that we're in, let's just say we're in love with each other and let's get married. You know, like you do as a teenager. Not false. Not false. Not false. Romeo's friend Friar Lawrence tries to talk him out of getting married after one day because wasn't he just in bed for two weeks over another girl? Yes. Um, He agrees to go ahead and marry them. Romeo and Juliet get married in secret. Yes. Tybalt can't let the party crashing incident go and challenges Romeo to a duel. Romeo is like, crap, this guy's my family, so I don't really want to fight you. Mercutio gets pissed off at Tybalt for being a dick and Romeo for not fighting back, so he accepts the duel and gets stabbed when Romeo tries to break up the fight. Yep. Destroyed that his friend is killed, Romeo kills Tybalt. Yep. Benvolio is like, dude, you were in the right, and when you use the local stand-your-ground law, the Prince of Verona doesn't care and has you get kicked out. Which is not false. Which is not false. Romeo secretly spends the night in Juliet's bedroom and they get it on because they're now a married couple. Yes. Lord Capulet sees his daughter is all upset about something, which is basically Romeo getting his ass kicked out of Verona. And because he can't read the room, he agrees to marry her to Count Paris early. And when she's like, no fucking way, her dad threatens to disown her. So she changes course, asks to delay the marriage, and her mom says no. Mm -hmm. Juliet goes to Friar Lawrence. He gives her a potion so she can look like she's dead, but it's only like for a 24-hour coma, sorry, two and 40-hour coma. I was getting it confused with the movie, man. Or, you know, my regular nap schedule. Um, That's like a whole ass day. Uh, I had to set an alarm to get up today. Ma'am. Anyway, she takes the drug right before she's supposed to get married and Friar Lawrence sends a letter to Romeo. It says, don't worry, she's not actually dead. But, you know, mail sucks in Verona and he doesn't get and the everywhere. letter. Yes. It's like trying to send it through the U.S. Postal Service. No offense. I have family members who used to work there. Anyway, um, he learns about Juliet's death from his servant, Balthazar, freaks out, buys his own poison cocktail, and goes to the Capulet tomb. Count Paris is there. He thinks that Romeo is there to rob them. There is a battle ensuing. Romeo kills Paris. Romeo then drinks the poison. Juliet wakes up as Romeo was dying and then stabs herself, so they die together. And then Friar Lawrence has to tell everyone what happened and tell everybody that they're dicks. And if they weren't fighting in the first place, this never would have been a problem. This play is just so much. Like, there's a thing called suspension of disbelief, which I think we've explained before, haven't we? I think so. Okay. So if I need to explain it again, suspension of disbelief is a when you're going into a work, uh, you're going to have to, like, suspend your level of disbelief. Because if you're watching, like, a cartoon... 
yeah, sure, like, rabbits aren't anatomically six feet tall and talk. Like, sure. You have to suspend your level of disbelief for a lot of things. Romeo and Juliet, for me, had a very, like, bad level of suspension of disbelief because this is one of those works. Like, I think we had that with a... Was it Sula? Where it's like, if any of you had just talked to each other. Right. If, if anyone had just, like, had a conversation, this wouldn't have been a problem. And honestly, from my day job, I see this a lot between neighbors. Like, yeah. if they would just say, hey... I love your dog, but it's barking at 2 a.m. and it's causing problems. Right. You wouldn't go to court. Yeah. Your neighbor would probably be like, oh, crap. Sorry, I didn't know. Because, uh, so earlier before we officially started recording, we were talking about, like, other tragedies and stuff like that. And, like, Hamlet being more effective. And, yeah, I think Hamlet is more effective because, like, those stakes feel very real. Like, mm-hmm. you can feel hey, if your ghost dad came to you, like, in the night and said, this fucker killed me, you would be, you know, rightfully enraged. Right. This just feels like if any of you had had a conversation at any point in time, there would be a significantly less amount of fatalities and things would probably be fine. And honestly, I remember feeling a lot of these emotions as a teenager, Mm -hmm. being like, no, but mom, I love him even though he was 23 and I was 17. You know, like, stupid shit that you do as a teenager, but if your parents are paying attention to you in any fucking way, you're okay, or your guardians, like, yeah. Thank you you'll that. probably be okay. Like, it's, I think a lot of it, too, is the parents in this are, you know, they're wealthy. They're basically like, here, I pass my kid off to this nurse. But I want to make it a wealth issue because I think, like, realistically, a lot of parents aren't paying attention to that. Because, like, realistically, think back to the hundreds of years it's been since either of us have been teenagers. Back in my day right, like, think, with think, the aim. Right. Think think back to, like, the thousand years it's been since either of us were teenagers. Did you know what was going on in your own mind? Oh, hell no. How could you expect your parents or guardians to? Like, you couldn't. Like, I... I held and sometimes still hold like a lot of animosity towards my aunts for like air quotes not getting me. And then I like I look back at like my old like emo poetry, like, I didn't get me. How could they get me? No one got me. <laughs> the only person who understood me was the lead singer of Lincoln Park. <laughs> Chester Bennington. I my- miss him. <laughs> Mine was Trent Reznor. So. Right, like the only the only person who understood me. Were like the bands Green Day, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, and Linkin Park. Those were the people who understood me. And sometimes Simple Plan, because I had bad taste as a kid. I was like, Nine Inch Nails, Garbage, and Stabbing Westward. See, like, that's just that little bit of age difference between us. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I have completely missed, uh, not Backstreet Boys, I hit that one hard. Uh, the one everybody loves that I never got into. Uh, it'll come back to me later. 98 Degrees? No, 98 Degrees was great. It was like... The one where Jordan Knight was from. I can hear people screaming in the background right now. The 18s? It was... was um, Jordan Knight? I'm Googling this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I know that we have a lot of 90s listeners right now who are about ready to smack me in the face. Do we have a lot of 90s listeners? I mean, I don't know. What are our current analytics? I don't know if we have age analytics. I don't know if they they translate that. If you're in the... The internet says that he is an American uh, singer-songwriter, which I do not believe. New Kids on the Block. There we go. Okay. I am so sorry. I know my friend uh, Amanda C. right now is going, oh my God, how do you not know New Kids on the Block? You know another Amanda C. I do know another Amanda C. 
I'm like, I'm right here, woman. But I'm not, I'm not dropping her last name because like, I don't know if I have permission. Like, woman, I'm right here. Um, but yeah, like this just very much feels like if anyone at any point in time had a conversation, this wouldn't be a tragedy. And, and like a tragedy on such a scale, so many people die. Because like that's usually the nice thing about tragedies that they're self-contained. Like you make an example of the two naughty children. Yeah, instead you have Mercutio die, you have Tybalt yeah. die, you have Paris die. I felt bad for Paris because he was basically just like, hey, this girl's hot, I want to marry her, I'm really sad she's dead, I'm going to hang out at this tomb, oh my god, there's a grave robber, oh, now I'm dead. I'm also way too old for this girl. Like, Paris is gross. Yeah. So, I, I will say, having rewatched the 90s movie last night, the Boz Lerman, like, yeah. yes, um... When I saw Paul Rudd as Paris, I was like, no, don't, don't go with Leo DiCaprio. He's going to cry. Like, hang out with Paul Rudd because Paul Rudd will never age. You will always have a hot husband. Like, I mean, realistically, they're both immortal vampires at this stage. Yeah. See, I felt bad for Mercutio because, like, he was just trying to, like, do his bro solid. Mercutio is my favorite character. In the Baz Luhrmann movie, or like in, in general? In the Baz Luhrmann and in general. Because in the Baz Luhrmann movie, he's wonderful. We're jumping the shark. We'll talk more about Baz Luhrmann shortly. Because, I mean, Mercutio basically comes out, is full of crap, says all sorts of weird stuff, does everything in his power to be the center of attention, and is like, Romeo, get your ass up, we're going to a party. And I've had so many friends like that where I've been in the depths of a depression that are like, get the fuck up. We're going to go have dinner. We're going to walk through Target drunk, and it's going to be great. You can say my name. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> you and my friend Crystal, like you, man. You can, you, say, you can say my name. I'm sitting right here. You and Crystal have lifted me off the floor before and yes. been like, okay, no, we're going to go to a book fair. But like, not the Scholastic Book Fair we're still chasing the high of. Oh, that looked wonderful. I took my kid to the, uh, well, stepkid, but she's it's, my kid. Don't rationalize it. You're I know. Okay, anyway. Um. I'm friends with her mom, so I think it's fine. Anyways, it sounds, so um, it sounds so awkward. It is. It was awkward in the beginning, and now it's just like, hey, uh, we're both dealing with preteen nonsense. Anyway. Scholastic Book Fair. Scholastic Book Fair. You walk into that, it just smells like new books. It's majestic. Now they do a little cart of books for parents, although they're all, like, really cookbooks and not great stuff. But anyway, moving on. I love it. That's great. Back to Mercutio. Back to Mercutio. Uh, completely wrong to deserves justice. I would like a four-part HBO miniseries just oh from his gosh. perspective. That would be amazing. I would love that. Because I feel like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of scenario where like I feel like the story from his perspective is entirely different and infinitely more interesting. I kind of want to be like Tom Stoppard, get on that. Yeah, like I feel like a Mercutio miniseries is just party, 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 death. I mean, I've had a lot of friends like that, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Um, that's one of the themes is the lack of communication. Yeah, um, that's definitely, uh, a theme is just not having a rational, uh, feeling about anything, which actually started to feed into the whole Italians are passionate and crazy sort of thing. Um, one of the things I really like too is that Romeo just has really good friends because he's a straight up whiner sometimes. He like, there's all these lines. He's like, teach me how not to think. And I can't dance. My soul is lead. And it's like, listen, we've all been there at I mean, 14. He's a, he's a moody boy. And I do kind of like this portrayal of like a moody, sensitive boy because so many uh, males are encouraged not to feel. So 
we get to talk about toxic masculinity in the way that it does add to the narrative. Like, I do kind of like that he is a bit of a moody, sensitive boy because we don't get many examples of that in classic literature. Uh, normally, he would be kind of encouraged to take his feelings out with anger or rage. And really, he's not usually the one doing the stabbing, like, out of anger. It's usually self-defense or, like, irrationality. Or there's the whole part where he, like, does not want to attack Tibble. He's like, mm-hmm. listen you're my kinsman i can't do this shit but he can't say it out loud right because everyone's around him they don't know that he just got secretly married i just i mean again communication yeah i I, I feel like sure there would have been consequences but at any point in time i feel like if they just said hey look we really really wanted to do each other and now we're married so this is just where we are like i think that that would have yeah there would have been consequences but it wouldn't have been death (laughs) Well, what's crazy, too, is the majority of the stupid shit that's done is the Capulets and the Montagues, but their crew. Like, it's, we have a gang of people who are like, no, we're going to, like, go kill these people in the streets. We're going to do this. And you're going, but why? But why? It does feel like very Game of Thrones, where it's like, but why? What do you gain by doing this? There is no point. There is no... Like, sure, it's a temporary, like, linear win, but it isn't, like, a long-term victory. It's a short-term pleasure. It is a brief and fleeting moment of elation that later crumbles into dust and turns to ash. Now, on the lighter side of things, there is a lot of sexism and dirty jokes. Oh, yeah, you have to be smart enough to get them. And by smart, I mean, like, you have to understand, like, Shakespearean talk. Uh, biting your thumb at somebody um, is basically the equivalent of suck these nuts. Um, it's also uh, flipping someone off, essentially. Yes. Which I did a lot of when I was in uh, high school, is I would bite my thumb at people because they didn't get the reference. Yeah, they have no idea, and it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of dick jokes. So many dick jokes. Basically, anytime somebody starts talking about swords in this, it involves a penis. Yeah, because, I mean, they are very phallic things. Uh that's why in the Baz Luhrmann movie, they're replaced by guns, which is our phallic symbol. Yeah. What's really interesting, too, if you're watching the Baz Luhrmann movie, all of the or the uh, guns have labels that say, like, sword model or dagger model. like. Yeah, because they're trying to, like, replace the whole sword and uh, dagger action with guns, which has about as tact as a John Woo movie. <laughs> I love John Woo, though. <laughs> you would. You would unironically love John Woo. I can't help it. That's fair. Um, there's a lot of things in here in regards to, like, versus light and dark. There's a ton about the moon, like, basically being in charge. Because they have to do so many things under cover of darkness as a yeah. couple. There is a lot of uh, light and dark imagery, uh, which I think is fascinating. And actually that they really put emphasis on the dark. Because, yeah, like they can only do these things in secret. Most are all about the daylight and the day and the sun. And it's like, no, but the moon. And then the whole, like, nightingale and lark uh, little line is very cute. Oh, the whole thing where they're, she's, like, trying to convince him that he doesn't need to leave yet? Yeah, it's like, "Twas the nightingale you heard, not the lark. And it's like, oh, that's sweet. Time is a myth. Um. <laughs> <laughs> they're very much like, no, 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 no. I want more grainy time. I do really like... Ma'am! I love the whole thing where she's talking about, like basically she has 
been not she has been sold but basically that she's bought the property but she has not taken possession of it yet because they haven't had sex yet and she's like really upset about it i'm like listen been there <laughs> eager to roll in the hay eager to roll in the hay hey you've already told me you love me we're down but also realistically like, that would have put the entire claim to their marriage at risk like it wasn't just her being a horny teenager it was if we do not consummate this isn't valid yeah they can annul it very quickly right like that's oh my gosh i don't remember which king it was but like there was one us uh, one of the Stuart kings in england who's like oh well we can prove that they ever that he and his wife ever fucked so maybe she's illegitimate and like there was a lot of like discussion around like male purity which really has never been a talking point ever uh so it was fascinating but yeah, like it wasn't just her being a desperate, flighty, horny teenager. It was yeah, if they didn't consummate, then there would be a very easy argument to say this is a dumb decision, dumb children made. But I really also like the fact too that Shakespeare does give her some agency, and I mean it's uncomfortable the fact that this would have been played by a teenage boy. Um, but the fact that she has access to her own sexuality and she's like, yeah, I'm ready, let's go. Like yeah, I think. The one thing I will say I do like about a lot of the more modern interpretations is that they are, do play a little fast and loose with the ages, because I think it's the ages that make this so kind of hard Awkward. to deal with. Because, like, <laughs> I read this when I was 14, so I was, in theory, same age, slightly older than Juliet, and sure, I had irrational love feelings like that, but I didn't need a cautionary tale saying that if I had any kind of lady boner, it would result in death. I didn't need that. I was already raised Catholic. I didn't need any more dogma saying that if I had any air quotes unnatural feelings that I would just fall to the ground promptly. I mean, we had that in the Protestant church too, which it was sex is bad and okay. it that whole scene, I can't remember what movie it is, but it's like if you have sex, you will die. Like it's it's not Twilight. Yeah, anyway. The whole, the whole idea that, like, love is fatal is just frustrating and sad. Because we don't need that. Like, especially if you're going to make children read this, like, at least wait till they're older. Thank you. Okay, so this is, that is my big complaint about Romeo and Juliet is we usually in the U.S. read this about freshman year of high school. So 14, really. 14, yeah. 15, maybe. You read this as a baby you read this as a, i have no real access to this in the real world yeah you read this as a, I have a crush on the boy in my math class who like possibly picks his nose casually but is so funny it's just so funny um it's stupid like your hormones are such assholes at this age and you're reading this going oh but they truly love each other. They knew each other for a day. Right, like, it's it's bad on either reading of it as a teen. Because if anything, I read it as, like, a biting reason to not love. All I can hear now is Elsa going, you can't marry a man you just met. Literally, like, that's what it turned me into. It was like, cool, you can't have feelings about anyone. Like, on either end of the spectrum that either fling wholeheartedly into the furnace of desire... Or recoil in such a way that thou becomest a shrew. Okay. Taming of the Shrew is like my favorite except for the very end. But anyway. We don't talk about the ending. The ending doesn't count. It doesn't exist. Not in our fan fiction. Not in our like, fan fiction. <laughs> it's going on a t-shirt. Anyway. Sure. <laughs> but like, yeah. 
either way, when you read this as a kid, like, you, you can't, you can't rationalize this. You can't put your head around it. And if you can, I'm sorry, what kind of yeah, childhood what do you, you have? Do you need me to hug you? Um, and I mean, teachers do their best, but this is what happens when you have something on the curriculum since the beginning of time. Not the beginning of time. Well, it's really, well, 1600s. But what's really awkward is it's just like, Shakespeare, there's so many aspects of it. And there's so much to learn. And there's so much that you understand once you've had real life experiences mm-hmm. that you don't get when you're 14 and the extent of your like childhood jobs has been babysitting. Like, yeah. But I also think a lot of it is like teachers do tend to use it to teach like a lifestyle. So it is very much taught like as still as a cautionary tale of like, hey, sex is deadly. Like, and that's just not true. That's just not accurate. And yeah, there is a danger. I don't remember. I saw this in Crash Course, but it was basically saying when you read this as a teenager, you're at a stage where you are just dumb enough to be able to fling yourself into these reckless decisions, but just old enough that they could kill you. Right. And that is, I'm, I'm butchering that phrase, but that really struck me. It's like, that's true. You were just young and dumb enough to think that this is romantic and okay and just old enough to where if you make a dumb decision that it could have permanent real world consequences Mm -hmm. and i think there's not enough context around that when you teach this to children there's just not there can't be you you can't tell a 14 year old that the first boner they've ever had is not going to be the person they marry we have no context for that Oh, and as a culture, we romanticize the high school teenage sweetheart relationship so much. Too much. Um, I mean, and if you do marry the person you dated in high school, great. That's amazing. The fact that you are able to grow and change together, awesome. Does not usually happen. Yeah, if I had to marry the guy that I was dating in high school, one of them was actually, like, not a good person. (laughs) Like, uh, I don't want to get in trouble for slander, so I'm not going to talk about my high school boyfriend. Do you see how veiled I was? Mm-hmm. Like, just not a not, not a, a good, good person. person. Like, it's it's frustrating because yeah, like we, I think I can say confidently we've all had that Romeo and Juliet relationship where there's just factors holding you apart, and you know you can be better, and you meet under a cover of darkness, and it's hot and it's heavy, and you're young and dumb and hormones and ah. Oh, and the secrecy is so sexy. Like, you think it's so hot, and then you get older, and you're like, so, like, you were ashamed of me, or... But I also find the, like, secrecy really uh, veils against criticism. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, uh, my first boyfriend, and I've mentioned this before, was, like, uncomfortably older than me when I was in high school. And, like, a lot of our secrecy was to veil that criticism, was to hide that that was a part of our relationship. And looking back, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too, is our culture romanticizes these relationships where the guy is much older and the girl is much younger. Yes. And it's really creepy. Yeah, it's one, it's grossly patriarchal and goes yeah. back much earlier than any of us like to give credit. I mean, it makes sense for generations where your wife died in childbirth. At, and like, now, 20. At 20, and now you're looking to replace her because you've got four children. Like... That makes a lot more sense, but... But now... God, no. It's like... 
you have birth control, you have options. It's like, and it's, I mean, you see it a lot in the porn industry too. It's a lot of, oh, barely legal. Like she just turned 18. Yeah. Fetishization of like schoolgirls and teenagers and realistically, like you don't, you don't want to have sex with an 18 year old dude. I mean, I don't, anyway. I was going to let you run with I'm that. I'm not a, a lecherous 60-year-old man, so I can't tell you. No, but I mean, like, I, I remember getting told at 17 that if I didn't work on getting married, I was going to die alone. I remember having a massive crush on the um, substitute teacher we had for chemistry, Mr. Mister Tristan, which I won't give you your last name because I don't want to get in a lawsuit for slander. He was gorgeous. He had a ponytail. He was hot. He was smart. He had covered a bunch of my classes before. And I was like, this is the man I will love. And I was like 15. It was stupid. Anyway. You had a hot teacher? Oh, yeah. Mr. Timberlake. Oh, that's awesome. Psychology teacher had like a soap opera story that I'm pretty sure now is a lie. But like had like a soap opera story. Like his girlfriend was in a car accident. And she forgot about him, but he took care of her regardless. And, like, they had just broken up. Oh. Yeah, that doesn't sound real at all. But, like, Silver Fox, salt and pepper like, hot teacher. I was a little older. I was at least, like, 16, 17. So, do we get to talk about Romeo and Juliet laws? Oh, anyway. Laws? Do you not know about the Romeo and Juliet clause? Oh, for Texas? Yeah. You want to explain it? Because I don't really understand all the details yet. So, uh, Texas has a Romeo and Juliet clause where basically it, like, circumvents our age of consent that so long as, like, family is either okay with it or, like, you're just flirting with age of consent that it you kind of get a pass. And that's just gross and icky and I hate that I live in a state that has that. I mean, we have a lot of laws that don't make any sense. We do, but why that one? Uh, Should we talk about using other locations uh, for satire? Yes. Okay. Uh, So Shakespeare does this a lot, where if you're going to make a biting social critique, don't do this in your uh, backyard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially when the queen is paying you to write nice words. Yes. Uh, Don't say mean things about the people who are your neighbors in your yard. So Yes. Don't so, say mean things about people you're trying to do a treaty with. Right. So he likes to set his most biting critiques in other places, hence why Hamlet is Danish, though it has nothing to do with Denmark, and Macbeth is Scottish and has nothing to do with Scotland. I mean, to be fair, though, they kind of like to fuck with Scottish people for ever. Is this just a Scots rights podcast now? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Anyway. I'm fine with that. Uh, Take the nuclear weapons out of Scotland. We are not your storage bitches. I actually agree with that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but that was a big thing in a Shakespeare's motif. Uh, there, uh, there really isn't a reason to set it in Verona, except for the play that this is inspired by is set in Verona as well. Uh, you could have changed it because realistically it doesn't matter. Uh, but the idea that, well, yeah, these hot-blooded Mediterraneans, they would do something like this. This wouldn't happen in England. The English are too rational. Exactly. <laughs> the English are too rational. They'd never do something this reckless or immature. Like pushing monarchs out of windows. Right, or scoffs. Shooting people in the eye. Um, there's also some anti-Catholic sentiment in here that uh, John Green helped me um, elucidate. That the whole idea that the secret marriage is Catholic. And that it's a friar... Who has all these spells and potions and will secretly wed children is kind of like, 
Thanks, we get it. You hate Catholics. Cool. Is this, is this like the Shylock stuff? It kind of is. Yeah. So, thanks, we get it. No one likes Catholics. We have very nice gardens, and we do know how to make poisons. I mean, I think that's a plus for the Catholics, but... <laughs> like, I'm not hearing a negative here, but... Wicca, Catholicism. Yeah. Um, but... I can't plant anything. It all dies. I, is that because I'm a Lutheran? It's because you're Protestant that you can't grow things. <laughs> I'm protesting so everything dies. And I have no issue growing things. Uh, but yeah, I that's actually a fascinating point that um, if you are a student listening to our podcast, uh, your teacher will be very, very impressed to know that there is a fair amount of anti-Catholic sentiment in here. You had also included some notes about roses. Yeah, the whole, there's a lot of rose stuff. Uh, they're not just a romantic flower. It's also the flower of the Tudor house. Uh, because during the War of the Roses, which led to uh, the Tudors rising to power, they actually fused two rose symbols together to get the Tudor rose. Uh, there is a lot of rose stuff, and it's important. English roses are beautiful, but they will also cut the fuck out of you. I mean, that's fair. Yes. All right, let's talk about backlash. We've already talked a little bit about love being irrational and dangerous. We've talked a lot about love being irrational and dangerous. I mean, we do that with a lot of books, though, too. Amen. <laughs> uh, so this play got a lot of backlash, like, I think around the time we were in high school, I think it was when people started, like, criticizing, I used air quotes, criticizing this uh, for a lot of the reasons that we kind of said with more nuance earlier. But when you don't argue with any nuance it just becomes dumb it's like well this is a stupid book and it's a bad influence okay sure most books are bad influences it realistically any book you could list is probably a bad influence to someone i mean sometimes you write a book called the satanic verses and then you get a fatwa put against you right right ma'am yes it's not. It's not a bad. It's a really good book. I know anyway, it's a good book. I, now I have a fatwa against me. Right, anyway, I know it's a good book. That's why. I, uh, Just make faces. Like why? Why do you do this? Yes, uh, but it does get a lot of backlash, and um, I think it's kind of at this stage. It's sort of it's punching down, like it's cheap to take a shot at this book because I think people aren't getting the point that it's not meant to be a one to one comparison for anything. Like this isn't meant to be a guidebook of how to fuck up your life by the time you're sixteen. I mean, we all have new creative ideas for that. Right, like this isn't an anarchist cookbook of how to ruin your life by the time you're 16. Interestingly enough, that and the Bible got stolen a lot at Barnes & Noble. I am not shocked at all. Uh, so I, I, I get kind of frustrated when people are like, oh, I hate this book. This book is anti-feminist. This book is anti-this. It's like, you're not reading it right. This was a play. This was a play. This was a play for the plebeians. Yeah. This was something to help you forget that your life was trash. Yeah, or you could go see a chained bear fight dogs. I mean, that was also something that happened at the Globe Theater a lot. Oh, there was a lot of bear baiting. So much bears. Oh, so much baiting. So much bear. Uh, but yeah, like, I, I, just, I think at this stage, the backlash is kind of cheap and hollow. Because it's like, I think you're missing forest for trees. It's, yeah, you aren't supposed to give this book as a manual for bad decisions to naughty children. That's not what this book is. Like, it is, first and foremostly, social commentary. And it's a cautionary tale. And the cautionary tale is against bad communication. Because at any point in time, if anyone had said something, 
And it's also a commentary against just blindly following creed. Do you blindly follow your family? Do you blindly follow your country? Do you blindly follow your party? Do you blindly follow your religion? It got political. It always gets political. It does. We Um, haven't had to talk about white hegemony yet. Oh, but you use the phrase, you can check it off on your bingo card. Hell yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like, do you... Do you make these decisions for yourself? Are you prepared that these decisions may have consequences? Some of them may be dire. Not usually. Getting it in usually isn't fatal. Use protection. Be smart. Yeah. Yeah. We're a sex ed podcast now? We're, we're o- I mean, we could be. We're Ojoy sex toy? <gasps> Can we do Fear of Flying? Then we are. Hell yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like... I, I think people forget that it's a cautionary tale, but like, but then they'll remember it's a cautionary tale, but then they'll caution against the wrong thing. It's not a cautionary tale against love. I think you almost have to have, I'd be careful how I say this. You almost have to have those weird relationships as a kid, not the unhealthy, gross ones. Like I'm never going to say like, you need that to be strong. That is patently not true. But like, I think you need to have those flighty, intense, insane whirlwind romances as a kid to understand that this is reckless, irresponsible, and please, oh God, no. Like when you're 14 and you date a guy on the internet for one day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. We love each other, but I lost my internet connection and now he hates me. Yeah, like, yeah. or you hook up with a guy that you met at a Texas Junior Classics League for Latin. I mean, I can see this for you. This 100% happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> this 100% happened to me. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the text. We are going to talk about the um, text. My ninth grade teacher, Mr. Lawrence, which is interesting because Friar Lawrence, anyway, ah. used to say that if it's a Shakespearean tragedy, pretty much everyone dies. But if it's a comedy, everyone gets married. Um, so you'll kind of be able to figure that out. Everybody dies. So this is a tragedy. A lot of people die. Not everyone dies. Shakespeare was not highbrow for his time period. No. Now we're all like, oh, I'm going to go see a Shakespeare play this weekend. And everybody's like, oh, you're so cultured. But really, it's... What kind of backwoods, Downton Abbey accent was that, ma'am? Listen, I'm not good at this. I um, I was trying to do Eleanor Shellstrop from The Good Place. And she's like, ew, I'm a beautiful draft. Anyway. I doth protest. <laughs> Shakespeare was super lowbrow. It was something that people just did to for entertainment it was kind of like going to watch the fast and the furious which i'm now probably getting a divorce because my husband's gonna be really mad about that line but it was this or go see a chained bear fight dogs yeah it was yeah you had an option you could either watch a bear get attacked by dogs or you could watch a lot of bear attacking dogs or you could eat grapes and stand there while a teenage boy pretended to be a woman i mean that's (laughs) <laughs> Sunday brunch. Anyway. Yeah, you're talking to someone who cross-dresses for fun. So. We... Unfortunately, we have to talk about iambic pentameter. <laughs> iambic pentameter is not hard. It's really it's not. But it's actually kind of a familiar way of speaking. But uh, We speak fa- in a lot of iams. The fact that you have to sit there and probably verse it out in class is really annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, do you want to explain it? Do you want me to explain it? I'll explain it. So, iambic pentameter is a line of verse with five metrical feet consisting of one short or unstressed syllable followed by one long stressed syllable. So, stressed and unstressed is putting uh, emphasis on the syllable. 
So you had an example in here, two households both alike in dignity. Yeah, uh, it, it helps if you clap it a little bit sometimes, uh, but clapping it sometimes makes it a little bit too sing-song. It wasn't really sing-song. I definitely, I don't like the 60s, 70s uh, sepia matte painting Romeo and Juliet that everyone had to watch in school. You know exactly which one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Especially because you can still find the song. Yeah, uh, the song was horrible. Mm-hmm. But they, the 60s. It's fine. they do a pretty good job of capturing that uh, iambic pentameter. Because, yeah, if when we tend to do it, it comes off like a fucking nursery rhyme. And that's just not, it's not that sing-song. It's not meant to be that sing-song. But if that helps you wrap your head around it, because I think I took Latin for all four years of high school and all four years of college, because of course I did. So we had to learn a lot about, like, stressed and unstressed syllables when you aren't used to having to think that way if you have to kind of and i'll go ahead and say it crassly dumb it down to that level to build yourself a foundation go ahead like if you have to clap it out for your first time learning that uh prologue do it no one can shame you shakespeare is dead no one cares um yeah shakespeare's not gonna come up like some sort of weird zombie and smack you in the face you're fine i hope he does I mean, I just imagined you, like, with this weapon being like, shh, shh, come back here, immortal bard. Like, because no, that's 100%. It would be full uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead. You just see, I'd be like, oh, were you going to write me more plays? Yeah, and I'm, I have a wooden katana by my front door to use as a weapon. Do you, like, bow and then attack him? Pretty much. Excellent. Uh, John Keats's uh, Last Will and Testament is a perfect line of iambic pentameter, which is uh, my chest of books divide amongst my friends. Which, yeah, um, when I die, nobody's going to want these books behind me. I also just love like how extra that is, that you can have a line of iambic pentameter as your last will and testament. I feel like now I need to update a will and just write it all in iambic pentameter. No, don't do that. My, <laughs> my will is not in iambic pentameter. My will is mostly bulleted list and terse commands. Do this. I want yeah, to scare him. You will bury me with this. It, um, it almost reads a little bit like that. Uh, what was that one kind of if I die young? Was that Taylor uh, Swift? No, that wasn't Taylor Swift. Uh, Who was that? The band Perry. Oh, okay. Yeah, it reads a little bit like, if I die young, bury me in costume, lay me down on a bed of roses. <laughs> I'm really terrified now. I kind of want to read your will and also I don't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, don't read Please my will. Please don't die. Um, <laughs> we have to get to the one-year special first. So there are a lot of adaptations There's of this. So, I mean, I, we actually left out, I think, like, one of the most important ones, which is West Side Story. Yes. Maria! I'm actually, not going into it. I don't like West Side Story. Well, I mean, again, it's like you've got your gang with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I don't like it because, like, I fundamentally don't like Romeo and Juliet very much. Like, it's definitely not my favorite Shakespeare, 100%, but, like, I also, I think that I can understand it as a classic, and I do like the music, but it's just so, over again, suspension of disbelief. I'm just like, why are you fighting? Well, all the adaptations tend to do something where they go over the top. Now, at least, like, so I think West Side Story making it about, like, racism and stuff, okay, cool. But then when you make it sharks versus jets, and it's just like snap battles and alleys. But when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. I hate you. I hate the fact that I knew that. And, and quickly. What you didn't see is in my head I was doing a kickball change. Yeah, no. Uh, but like, I think that there's something there than making it about like racism. There's something there. 
and then it's executed poorly like i can as a musical theater person i can say that i think the idea because that's a whole other issue with romeo and juliet is that it does uh to a lot of people of color feel like a large case of white people-itis yes it feels like a very long drawn out case of like white folk <laughs> just... i feel like we just need to have a series of books where we just have a sticker this is amanda white folk <laughs> that's what it like honestly that's because when you're an oppressed people you don't have time for this shit Right. You don't have time. When you're you t- surviving. Right. You're surviving. When you tell, like, the romances and, like, Beloved and Insula, we don't have time for this shit, okay? We are too busy trying to escape bullshit. Right. We don't have time for flighty promises on balconies and bird shit. We don't have time, okay? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. I was not a legally recognized person until 1865. While you're out here talking perfect lines of sonnet poetry and concerned about birds and moons. Wow, this summarized so much of Southern literature. Thank you! Like, we don't... Like, really, it does have, like, a very severe case of, like, white people-itis. Again, like, we talk like that, that suspension of disbelief. It's just, like, stop complaining. You're both rich. Wait till one of your parents dies. You're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine, homie. It's like... The 1500s. You have maybe two more years with your parents. Just wait. Have an affair. Those are things. Write a note in a secret eggshell. Do you know you could write notes inside of eggshells? I did not know that. Yeah. So you use this like little pin maneuver where you write a note inside of an eggshell and then you like use a corrosive material and it reveals the note. Do that shit. Use a secret AIM account. Wait, no, AIM's not a thing anymore. You use more Facebook reli- Messenger. <laughs> use more reliable messengers. Literally do anything that isn't decide you're going to die on this literal hill of a person. So there is a horrible adaptation that hurts me. I mean, it may make Yolo sense. Yolo Juliet? Yes. And here's the thing. You know what? There's probably people out there that this is the way that the book made sense to them, and I'm I'm really excited for you. Unfortunately, I was educated by Boz Lerman, so me trying to read a whole thing where texting between these different Capulets and Montagues just makes me want to scream. But also, a lot of it was because I kept going, okay, so whose icon is what? But, uh, I mean, if that's what helps you get through the text, awesome. Be aware they don't do things in sequence. There was, um, I think it was Hank Green did this thing where he did the book Emma as if Emma was, like, a YouTube vlogger. And, like, I kind of hate it, but also, like, if this removes a barrier to entry for you getting into classical literature, uh, be free. Be free with your poor taste. Because, yeah, like, it is is fascinating now that we consider this to be very highbrow when this is essentially uh, the equivalent of watching all the Transformer movies at once. There you go. Because Fast and the Furious actually has some fascinating lore and a lot of homoerotic subtext. Okay, we promised we were going to talk more about it, so I'm, like, really excited to jump into it. The 90s version. Baz Luhrmann. Oh, my God. Okay, so first of all, he's kind of a set-dressing genius. If you look in the backgrounds, there are references to multiple plays. Yes. There's references to Prospero. There's references to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. There are references to... Ham, all, all sorts of characters and things like that, just in the background of Verona Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, Verona Beach. Verona Beach, which 
I'm looking at it going, oh, this is Venice Beach. Okay, cool. No, it's Verona Beach. <laughs> anyway, it's painful. It's more about gangs. It's about painful crime. Painful to who? Okay, I love this Technicolor nightmare. We have discussed before on the pod that you do not appreciate the manic pixie dream boy that is Baz Luhrmann. No, I do not. And I think he is a secret evil genius. I will say that every time Leonardo DiCaprio cries in this movie, I laugh. And I don't know if that makes me a bad person or I don't know. Um, uh, to quote a series that I don't remember, he has a very punchable face. Mm-hmm. Super punchable face. And I mean, like, when he cries, his voice cracks. Which, to in, in DiCaprio's defense, he was a sweet baby. Like, he was a baby. Yeah. I think this one, I think the high melodrama of the Baz Luhrmann production made it easier for me to rationalize how insane it is. Uh, so, like, we talked about Moulin Rouge earlier, uh, before we were officially recording. And, like, I think Moulin Rouge works is because it is so stylized that, of course, you can buy that these people who have never met before suddenly are in love, and it's dramatic and hot and heavy. Like, of course you can buy it, because they're flying over rooftops with a literal absinthe fairy. That is a thing that happens in Moulin Rouge. Oh, I remember. <laughs> like, I think his style helps you fill in some of those gaps of where, like, logic would say, you don't know her fucking name. You don't know her. You know nothing about... You don't know each other. And, you know, they do the whole little uh, dumb meat cute uh, with the fish tank and, like, okay, cool, I buy it. Which is funny because Romeo is straight up in the bathroom. Yeah, he is. The fish tank is between her and the bathroom. Yeah. Don't think about uh, how the scene is set up. It's so gross, though. Sure. Oh, I do have to say I do appreciate all of Tybalt's wardrobe. Oh, yeah. It's, and, it's a lot of good wardrobe. And John Leguizamo, like, this just feels like Tu Wong Fu was the very, like, same step. Like, he, he was just moving laterally. Thank you for referencing Tu Wong Fu. I love Tu Wong Fu. I also love Tu Wong Fu. It's on Netflix. We also do the little Latin boy and drag while you crying all the time. So I love that. That makes me so happy. It's such it's such a good movie. By the way, it's a tie. It's a tie? At the end of Tu Wong Fu with the pageant. Oh, it's a yes. tie. And um, Julie Newmar is amazing, by the way. I met her because my friend was doing one of those things where you get your photos signed. And An she walked up session? to her. Yes. There you go. I mean, at a con, but it was great because my friend was there who I will, I will reserve her name for privacy's sake, but she walked up to Julie Newmore and said, I just want to thank you because your portrayal in movies helped awaken my sexuality. And Julie Newmore looks in graciously with her perfect shoulders and everything goes, me? Yes. You. I did that. And it was amazing. And I will always love Julie Newmore. Yes. She's my Catwoman. Uh, do we have to choose? No. Okay. Although Eartha Kitt is like right there. Like there's a millimeter. Yeah, I would say like it's like a 1A, 1B scenario. Mm. Um, no, I think the Baz Luhrmann version, I think because it is so stylized, yeah, like it does fill in a lot of those gaps where like logic starts to creep in. Because I think, here's the problem with Romeo and Juliet, as I mentioned, it does feel like a long extended case of white people-itis. Uh, it does. But also, like, there's just, there feels like there's a lot of gaps. There feels like there's just so many gaps in, like, logic and in common sense. But then when you have, like, a stylized John Woo gunfight in the middle of a street with a gun that says dagger, like, 
cool. It doesn't matter. We're in we're in an ecstasy filled nonsense land. And it's face up yeah. on the whole dais when Juliet is laying there and it says dagger. Right. Like it's it's a coke fueled nightmare and that's fine. Like that's fine. That's how I understand this work now. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, like, I get it now. Also, the 90s were a hell of a time, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I can't explain to you guys how the 90s were. Um, we do need to talk about, though, like, how there are so many adaptations of Romeo and Juliet and that a lot of them uh, are used and updated as far as, like, social commentary goes. Yeah. Like, there was one where it featured, like, a Christian Romeo and a Muslim Juliet. Like, there's a lot of gay versions. Like, there's just... I love that, if anything, now this is more of an archetype to make better stories from. Because, again, I think when you root it in something that's more real, then it really... Because that was one thing that always bothered me when I was a youth reading this, is why the fuck are these families fighting? What is the problem? Why can't this just be Game of Thrones and, like, you are two rich families, this is a political marriage, everything is fine? I mean, I think if we go to Dante, it's because a lot of people were fighting in Italy at the time. But, but, a lot of, but, like, but still, you want to know what the meat of the argument was. Right. I think that's it. Because, like, yeah, so in Dante's Inferno, we know what it is. Like, oh, well, you didn't look at me during mass that one time. Now I hate you. Okay, cool. That's dumb, but I understand. You at least gave me a reason. Why are they fighting? What is, what is, what is the cause of their 200-year blood feud? Why? And, like, realistically, are any of them so irrational that if their kids were just honest and said, hey, I like this boy across the street, that they would have been, no, this is bad. But, like, when you make it something that's more real and tangible, like, oh, we're literally different religions that air quotes hate each other, or this is a queer romance and this is meant to be secret because society is terrible, I think that's so much more powerful. And, again, like, where West Side Story, I think, succeeds is when they lean into this is a forbidden romance because racism is a thing. And don't make it about uh, street gangs fighting. So, let's talk a little bit about Shakespeare. Are we going to talk about the conspiracy that he is a hack and didn't write any of his own stuff? We are, we are a little bit. There is a lot of stuff about how Shakespeare may or may not have had a lot of assistance. <laughs> a lot. Um, so, as far as time frames... They aren't sure about the exact dates, because that's not really how they rolled. It was basically what was listed in the family Bible or in your church. So the estimated dates are uh, the 26th of April, 1564, to the 23rd of April, 1616, but it's not official. Um, according to a History Channel special I watched in high school, he was probably bi, and I'd like to claim him as a bicon, so I'm accepting it. Yeah, I'm willing to add him to the family. I mean, especially with all the poetry that was written to a, what is it, a something youth. It was an attractive youth or something. I'll, I'll go with that. Oh, um, wow. He created a lot of famous words and phrases. When you are listening to the these poems, or not poems, you listen to his poetry as well as his plays, you're going to hear a lot of things that we use all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't write any of them down because there are too many of them. There's infinitely better organized lists than the two of us being a little bit champagne drunk. Yeah, like I would definitely recommend looking it up and you will be blown away. At the Shakespeare Museum at the Globe Theater, it's like off to the side, there is an entire wall that's just painted of his phrases. And it was a little bit mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. um, this was actually, uh, Romeo and Juliet was based a little bit on some official tragic romances. Tragic romance was a big deal mm -hmm. at the time. 
Um, there are theories that he borrowed heavily from 1562's The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet by Albert Brooke. And by, uh, <laughs> by heavily borrowed, we mean lifted the whole fucking thing. Lifted the whole thing and added what he wanted. Yeah. Um, there's also a version of a story told in Palace of Pleasure by William Painter. Um, and then he went out and fleshed out the characters and was like, hey, mm-hmm. I made a play. Um, Shakespeare got a woman named Anne Hathaway pregnant. This was problematic for the time period. It was worse because it meant William Shakespeare could not study under a master to be a trained apprentice in a trade. So this reduced a lot of his job options, which is probably why he became an actor and playwright. Anne and Shakespeare lived with his parents when they had their baby. Uh, Their daughter, Susanna, was born at that time. Then they had Hamnet and Judith. If Hamnet sounds familiar, that's because after he lost him, he wrote Hamlet. Shakespeare did. Uh, Hamnet died pretty young. Anne and the kids still lived in William Shakespeare's parents' house while Shakespeare went to London. How nice. At this time, actors were considered to be untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot more money in this time period than previous time periods, which gave access to going to see plays and seeking amusement, as we've mentioned many times, bear baiting. Um, if a flag was over the theater, that meant that there was going to be a play that day. So mm-hmm. if it was red, it was a historical play. If it was white, it was a romance or comedy. And if it was black, that was a tragedy. So, like, we would always have a black flag over the house. I mean, that's also because my husband's obsessed with pirates. Anyway, mm-hmm. there are multiple theaters, so don't think it was just the Globe. There was the Globe, the Rose, the Hope, and the Swan. They were mm-hmm. the most popular. But the Globe was where Shakespeare's plays were mostly performed. If you had a penny, you could stand on the ground and you were known as a groundling. Yes. Um, There was a lot of food and there were a lot of sex workers. This is kind of one of the things that they did is they went to these plays. They picked up guys with their pimps. You know what happens from there. Think of it like a medieval times, but much more fun. (laughs) Medieval times, but you get sex afterwards. Have you been to medieval times? I have. I love medieval times. I haven't been in a long time. There's not one here. There isn't. I... I, you know, we should franchise one. The last time I went to Medieval Times was on one of the worst dates of my life, and I won't go into details on it. That sounds like a terrible date place. I went with my uh, Latin class, and I was too excited about torture implements. The torture museum is the best part. Like, I knew way too much and was way too excited. Screw it. We're going to Orlando. Hell yeah. Um, there are some people who think, obviously, that Shakespeare may have not written all the plays. Um... Where do you where do you sit on this debate? Because uh, I have thoughts. I do think he got a lot of help from other playwrights. Mm-hmm. I do think that any time that you write a script, once you go to perform it or execute it, it is uh, usually changed heavily, especially in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a feeling that he definitely got a lot of help. I don't think he wrote every single word. Yeah, I, I don't really like the Christopher Marlowe theory of, like, Shakespeare being an entirely a hack, because I do think that discredits a lot of his impact. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to say that, well, of course, he wasn't really a genius, but yeah, I do think there's a compelling argument. It's like Romeo and Juliet being pretty much entirely lifted from Romeo and Juliet, with some fan fiction elements added in. What blows my mind is that there is a current theory that Shakespeare is the one that translated the King James Bible. I could actually see that. Um, just because of a lot of the ways that things were written. Yeah, I, I feel like... Well, there wasn't... Y'all know that I, I don't like the King James Version of the Bible, though, right? Does anyone? <laughs> there are better editions. Anyway. 
I'm just um, trying to think, like, timeline-wise, would he have? When Shakespeare died, he left his wife, quote, the second best bed and the furniture, which feels pretty shady because usually at this time in history, women were the ones who handled their husband's estates after their passing. To preface, poorer women were. Poorer women, yes. Rich women uh, were chess pieces that men could play with. Yes. Um, something really weird in 2016 when they were doing a non-invasive process to check out Shakespeare's tomb they found a body but his skull is not buried in his grave they think that it may have been stolen by grave robbers a long time ago and now that we have new technology that was discovered okay creepy right no not really I mean there was that whole uh, piece of time where Einstein's brain went missing for a little while Oh, and um, Vlad Dracul's head is still gone. Right, like, that doesn't... Without me sounding like a murderer or a sociopath, that doesn't surprise me very much. That, of course, you would take the genius's head. We're gonna take it, and we're gonna use it in all the Hamlet plays. I mean, didn't, like, wasn't Percy Shelley's heart just recently returned to his grave? I think so, because didn't she have it, like, preserved and wrapped... Mary Shelley have it, like, preserved and wrapped in a desk drawer? So, his heart was calcified because of a condition that he had so it was already preserved like when he was embalmed and everything like it was already a messed up heart so then it was just given to mary shelley and she kept it with her and then when she died it was briefly buried with her and then they finally like maybe we should give dad his weird heart (laughs) so in 1623 seven years after his death the first folio of his of shakespeare's plays were published Mm -hmm. It's also the first time that William Shakespeare was spelled the way that we know it because Mm -hmm. he rarely signed his name the same way twice, which is why a lot of people think that it may have been multiple people. Yes. All right. Did we have to study this in school? Well, obviously. I mean, we've kind of already answered that. Um, I want to give Mr. Lawrence credit for letting me be super dramatic and climb up on this ladder to a storage area and perform the role of Juliet from there during popcorn reading. Can I help you? (laughs) I'm sorry. Climbed a ladder? Listen, I was very bored. It was ninth grade honors English, and I hated everyone in that class, so... I was also in honors. Yeah, we were. That's why we have a podcast. That's what makes us qualified? I, like, straight up want to be like, hey, does anybody from, like, a regular English class... Oh, I can call. Don't. We have a podcast. Now it feels elitist. No, it's not elitist. He he goes, I straight up didn't care. I just wanted to get through high school. Plebeian and regulars. What was your curriculum like? Finger painting and sewing? My sister told me that her English teacher taught them how to make hashish, so. Okay. Uh, I also had to read this. Uh, I used the prologue the first time, mostly because it clapped my way through it. And uh, I will say that the play has aged a little bit better for me now that I'm old. And I'm I'm not as cynical and mean as I was as a kid. I mean, I'm still cynical, but, like, the whole, like, that's not how love works. Like, I'm less of that. It's like, yeah, sometimes love does feel that way. And now I'm old enough and uh, bored enough to realize that that's irrational and dumb. Rational and dumb. Children. Okay, so there are a lot more resources than I listed here. So if you go to our website, unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com, the article for this episode is going to have a shit ton of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Very helpful. Most of them were stolen from, uh, like, Biography Channel and History Channel and stuff like that. It's not stolen if we give credit. I mean, it's not. But it's just linked back, so wh- whoever posted it gets the credit. But anyway, 
I listened to the Romeo and Juliet audiobook with Michael Sheen and Kate Beckinsale because, of course, I did. That sounds um, great. We know how much I love Michael Sheen. Um, we do. We do. We do. Uh, I read Yolo and Juliet, which thinks I hate it. Um, You're but, welcome. But if it helps, and it helps you get through Romeo and Juliet, we 100% endorse you doing yeah, that. Yeah, I am, I am at the stage of anything where... If it removes a barrier to entry, be free. My aunt did one of the smartest things. I'm praising my aunt on the podcast. Is that we would read the book and then usually watch a movie version to help me get through honors English. And that was one of the smartest things because I retained so many things better by watching movies because I am a dumb 90s kid. What's crazy too is now reading, rereading this stuff and going, I remember that line. I remember that line. Mm-hmm. And then watching the movie and being like, oh, they got that right. They got that right. right. That, what the hell was that? But like. Yep. There's a really good, more modern version of Wuthering Heights, but if we ever cover that, we'll go into that then. Do we have to? Heathcliff is me. Anyway, whatever he is made of, I am the same. Um, anyway, obviously we watched, or I watched the Boz Lerman film. I don't know if you rewatched it, but I know I that you've seen it before. I rewatched clips. I couldn't sit through the entire thing. I was deficient in drugs. Okay, listen, I <laughs> drank a lot of vodka last night I was when de- I watched it. So. I was deficient in party drugs like, to watch that movie. I'm a little excited too, because as I was going through, I found out there's a whole like series of Dr. Zhivago, so now I have to watch that. Oh, but anyway, Lord. and as always, Crash Course Crash Course is amazing. John Green, you're amazing. We love you. Yes. Uh, apparently, he's decided to take his Twitter uh, hiatus and make it indefinite. Okay. I don't. I don't disagree. I don't blame him, but it does make me sad because I feel like I would love to be like John Green. Look at this thing that we're doing. John Green, we love you. John Green, you're amazing. We yes. could make a YouTube video about how much we love him. We could. I think it would make him uncomfortable because he does have anxiety. I mean, so do we. True. Just a, a room full of anxious people trying to awkwardly say how much they admire and respect each other. Isn't that just Mr. Darcy? Yeah, Sar- <laughs> Sartre and Hell. Sartre and Hell. Anyway, Sartre, our next book Sartre is... Sartre and Hell, our uh, new cover band. <laughs> our next book is... To Kill a Mockingbird. Yay! And also the reason I want to name a kid Harper. Really? Yeah, but Mark told me no. Anyway... I also say no. Social media. We are pretty much everywhere. We are. Amanda rocks our Twitter at unfortunately RR. I do my best. Um, I'm on the Instagram at unfortunately required. I need to up my game. Uh, we are on unfortunately required reading on Facebook where you'll find a lot of really funny memes on a regular basis. I have the best memes. They are so good. And we also have unfortunately required reading.com, which yes. is where you can find basically places to listen, our merch and all sorts of cool stuff. And if you'd like to suggest a book for the podcast or have a funny story about literature, you can email us at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to read To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'm excited to talk about authorial intent, uh, southern racism, and when you narratively jumped the shark. All right. Now go read a book. Yes.